Welcome to another episode of Soundscapes, a Terrain.org podcast. In this episode, we're lucky to listen in on a wide-ranging and, of course, it is Ross Gay, delightful conversation between Ross Gay and Terrain.org's poetry editor, Derek Sheffield. Again and again, you'll hear Ross Gay jump from joy to a penetrating assessment of the many challenges we're facing, both individually and collectively, all before letting loose a deep belly laugh. Though Gay himself is quick to point out that he's not interested in understanding, he is interested in being in awe of, curious about, and there is truly an awful lot of hard-won and graciously given wisdom in this conversation. We'll start off, though, with a poem by Karen Miriam Goldberg. At the First Scent of Daylight by Karen Miriam Goldberg It's never what you think when you step into the afternoon sky, the indoor world behind you, asleep in the sleeping bed, cats and all. It's not the cold wood smell of dusk, a little coal, a little pine, or the smell of high noon, clothes evaporating rainwater on or off the line. It's not the middle of the dark when you were eight, Screeching breaks a block away, escaping a dream that smells like wet leaves and grapefruit. No, it's more like a spray of sea without the salt water, a relief, the flight of grasshoppers, the mechanics of daylight opening the wings in everything, even you. Now for our conversation with Ross Gay hosted by Derek Sheffield, who you'll hear begin the conversation. One of the things that occurred to me as I was reading this passage in uh, the Book of More Delights is, uh, the passages, and I noted how pleased I was, delighted even, as I tend often to be at having not reached the summit, to have gotten close but no cigar, uh, and so forth. And it put me in mind of something that I think Richard Hugo said that I think, you know what it is. I think that poets were in love with our own responses to things. Mm. That is a lovely way to put it. Uh, I like his poems a lot. Um, Richard Hugo. I have never thought of it like that, but I think that's a pretty good way to put it, you know, it's so funny. Like, I often think that, you know, things remain interesting to me as like things to write about or wonder about when I don't understand them, when I don't know them. But there's some relationship to like that loving the response to the puzzlement or the, I can't quite parse it out. It's such a good question. There's some relationship that makes me think that we might be in love with our capacity for like flabbergastment or our capacity for being moved, which is also to say whether or not we think of it often is that we're in love with our capacity to not know. Because I think knowing knowledge is a way of sort of, you know, knowledge makes one stable, but to be unknown, unknowing, even oneself, unknown to oneself, that means you're capable of being changed, actually. I love that. I love that. I love that you said that. As you dig into it, I think that's right. I think it feels to me that what's behind that is, you know, the curiosity and, you know, that, that we're, we're saying, well, why, 
why why do I feel this way? What what and why? And as you say, the the not knowing. Speaking of the not knowing, since you led us there, you write the moon may have chosen a few of the words in that last sentence. I am all the way on that team and have been for a little while now. Even though I was quite slow getting there, committed atheistico materialist, I aspired to be pretending or hoping everything was a machine that could be parsed and tinkered and decoded and conquered and possessed by the human intellect. Figured out, I guess, myself especially, I wonder, no luck. What is that about? I mean, my God. And I stopped there. So you are no longer a materialist? Are you a spiritualist then, Ross Gay? Tell us. Well, I think I, I'm no longer on team. It's all a machine. <laughs> I'm, I'm really convinced that there is more understanding than we will ever, ever, ever understand. There's more understanding. And I'm not interested in understanding it at all. You know, I'm, again, I'm sort of interested in like describing. I'm interested in being lost with or in the presence of or curious about. But I'm not... I'm not actually interested in getting to the end or the bottom of it. And I'm sure as hell not interested in trying to outsmart it. There's a kind of market for outsmarting the earth, actually, is the, the end result of which is that you destroy the earth. <laughs> if you keep going down that Cartesian yes. worldview, that's interesting. So do, have you chosen a flavor? Jesus, Buddha, <laughs> uh, Bhagavad Gita? <laughs> Or is this a Neapolitan? It's a Neapolitan. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, the mountain mint and the bees, you know? That's, that's sort of like what it is. <laughs> it's funny. I was actually just this morning, I was like looking at the, the mint here in front of our place. It's just nuts with bees right now. And I was trying to sort of, I was actually trying consciously to identify what the feeling of like really looking at that orgy is and i was like oh the feeling is like i don't know shit in addition to like man there's so much something being satisfied here there's so much interaction and collaboration that then when i realize every single time i look i don't there's 11 things that i didn't see the last time i'm like god damn i just don't know shit yeah i have some footage of i was just i just took my daughter on a hike nearby here this past weekend and i couldn't help but they call me the paparazzi because <laughs> when i i was a late holdout i i resisted this for a long time but then when i finally did get it i realized i always had this camera on me and uh, i mean it was about you know the daughters and uh, but then it's also about the bees and the flowers. And this bee was just going around and had these massive saddlebags, uh, these massive sulfur-colored saddlebags. And then like three of us just leaned over and just watched as closely as, as we could. And I was like, I filmed that. I'm like, I don't know shit, but I do know that this seems to be part of my job sitting here. And, yes. and my God, that is gorgeous. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. It's like, yeah, I don't know shit, but this, this thing here is true. Like mm -hmm. that. I do know that I can yeah. see the truth of this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's something bigger. There's something that will always be beyond our understanding. The more yeah. we understand, the more we, uh, we find out that we will never understand it all. Yes. I'm with you. 
Yeah, I'm totally with you. And that's been my experience with poetry too, man. The yeah. longer I study this thing, the more I'm like, yeah, you know, hold it. You want me to teach a class? Really? I, I don't know how I'm doing this. Really? I know. I know. I know. Yeah, it's like another place where the kind of beyond of it is really enticing and intimidating. And I feel best in relation to it when I'm not trying to be the master of it, but when I'm sort of trying to like play with it. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of the master of it, you say, sometimes I think there's a conception of joy, joy as meaning something like something easy. Mm. And to me, joy has nothing to do with ease and joy has everything to do with the fact that we're all going to die. When I'm thinking about joy, I'm thinking about that at the time as something wonderful is, is happening, some connection is being made in my life. We are also in the process of dying. That is every moment. That is every moment. I think this is just beautiful and, and true that we can hold the, the two truths that at this moment, I am dying. And you are dying. And we are also making these connections. Yeah, yeah. Is this soul here? Yeah, I think I have to. And I think of soul as, yeah, that's a good word also. In a way, I sort of feel like, you know, I feel like there's a there's a kind of immaturity that we have as a culture. And I don't know even like we as a culture, if that's an accurate thing. But like the notion that our dying and our living ought not be consider the same thing. And it feels like that actually is a great prohibition on joy, actually, or an impediment to joy, you know, like if that we are not actually sort of um, a lot of us anyway, or maybe like dominantly considering every day that this time on this, in this, in this form is not very long. Evidence of which is that, you know, like I was, I'm older today than I was yesterday. This body is actually different. So in a way, I sort of feel like that understanding is so basic, but it can feel for any number of reasons. And maybe, yeah, maybe it's like, I don't, I don't know, someone else could, could explain to me why. But I think that that deep disconnect between the fact of our dying and the fact of our living and actually the fact, the common fact of our dying being one of the things that deeply fundamentally connects us. You might say it's the fundamental connection, though you might also say that, you know, we mostly like sweet things is a, is a pretty sweet fundamental connection too. <laughs> but I think that is like a, there's a kind of sorrow to that refusal. Like a sorrow and I think a lot of misery comes out of it too, actually. I feel like the practice of understanding that we are commonly dying actually leads to a lot of tenderness. It leads to a lot of understanding. It also leads to a lot of kind of enthusiasm and flabbergastery. I think like, it's wild. It's wild to be here, like having this nice conversation over this thing. And to be like, damn, that dude's going to be dead. I'm going to be dead. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 We're not really about these answers at the end yeah. we, we're about living the questions right i mean that's what i feel yeah. in, in these delights is these beautiful questions these beautiful ponderings these beautiful attempts yeah attempts yeah sometimes i'll work with students who've come from other classes and other teachers and they've been taught that um 
that they um, shouldn't write about their own lives in their poems, that that's like the least that poetry could do. And like, mm. it's already been done. And mm. that is so sad to me. Yeah. Do you, have you encountered that? And when you do, what is your response? My, I think my general response to like those rules is to refuse them. Like you shouldn't do this. You should always do this. I kind of refuse that. So the idea that someone shouldn't write about their life, this is the idea that someone should always write about their life. I would kind of refuse but, you know, it used to be, I think probably when we were growing up, there used to be a kind of stance that had this notion of like a certain kind of timelessness about poems, the potential for a kind of timelessness. So that, you know, the way Frank O'Hara talked about the little nitty gritty, like the cigarettes he's getting and what he, who he's passing on the street and what's in the newspaper, that was actually like often not really thought of. That wasn't high enough or something. You know, whereas some there was plenty of talk of like something timeless, you know, so the little stuff of one's life might not be worthy of a big poetry. I was lucky to never really have those kinds of teachers in my life. When you write again with great wonder about, quote unquote, oneself, oneself becomes a really slippery thing, you know which is why the poems that are like really beautiful, that are, you know, sort of very personal and allegedly about a person's experience, they explode into not being about one person's experience. That's what we know. I feel like people wondering about themselves, when we wonder about ourselves and wonder about stuff, we're interested, partly because we change in the midst of it, you know, and I think people changing is really interesting. <laughs> On a related note, when I, I talk to my students about poetry being a big house in that house i would put your book of your books of delights mm -hmm. because there's so much poetry in in this prose and we talked about that a little bit earlier before the interview started about mm -hmm. um the kind of i mean the the kind of magic that happens when poets turn to prose yeah um and maybe we need a little more of that i mean mm -hmm. i think you know i think you're you got something going on here you know, some of our fellow poets have a different project and they're more interested in interrogating language and um, they uh, are really focused more on the fact that, look, Ross, you know that words are just a, a series of symbols, right? You know that word is not world. Yeah. So why are you why are you dicking around with these <laughs> things? There, we need to get beyond language, Ross. I mean, come on. Yeah. So what, how would you respond to that? I mean, that's something I've thought about a long time, a lot over the years, because they're right. You know, they're right. I mean, that that is what language is. Yeah. Um, or is it more? I mean, yeah. what, what, what would you say? What would you say to that? I was recently thinking about I was actually sort of like in my head having a conversation about how sometimes I can feel like in a way poetry or so much writing is sort of conservative. And by conservative, I mean, it's sort of, it's deeply inside of a system of knowledge that, that we all share and not we all share, but sort of a common familiar, I don't know, set of knowing or something. And I was thinking, oh yeah, one of the neat things that sometimes poems and other arts and other stuff too um, can do is actually, as opposed to like troubling the content, 
that we trouble in what we think about, you know, which is also worthy, can actually trouble meaning itself. I feel like there's something true about that, that there's even the ways that we, I mean, the ways that we tell stories actually can trouble meaning. I think a story that if we know the story has a beginning, a middle and end, or if it has a kind of resolution or this and that, that sort of offers a kind of meaning to anytime I go to a big movie, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm sort of being, and I say programmed, I don't mean that in any kind of nefarious way, <laughs> though maybe <laughs> to, to understand the world in a certain kind of way. And, and it's a, that's a storyline. And then when you see um, something, say a, a film that really doesn't work like that at all, that is imagistic or that is like in reverse or that like whatever, you're like, oh, okay, these stories actually do sort of offer or offer us modes of meaning, which feels to me like um, big stuff, you know, and it and it doesn't feel outside of language. It feels like language is one of the ways written language or spoken language feels like one of the ways that we do it. I love that you said dicking around, first of all. (laughs) 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 It's been a little while since I heard that. It's such a good phrase. I'm going to take that up again. The other thing is like, I I think stories are kind of, um, you know, stories, song, form, play, curiosity, et cetera, is is just like what we do. And even if it's not that interesting to me, I sort of am like, well, yeah, that's what we do. We tell stories. We understand things through stories. I feel like a useful, for me, an exciting project is to be like, oh, what if I don't know how to tell a story? Then what do I do? That's exciting to me. It's interesting. The older I get, those grander kind of antagonisms feel less significant to me. Like sort of beside the point. A little bit. Yeah. Like, you know, I I love a wide range of poems. I love poems that sometimes are kind of just like a, a, a very narrative, whatever poem that is, you know, that seems to be kind of coming like a right down the, in the strike zone, whatever you call it. And then I can like a poem very much that I love poems that I, I don't know how they're working at all. I just yeah. don't know. I don't know what they're doing with language. I don't know. It might even be hard to identify to me as a poem. I'm very interested in that. So in a way that, you know, also the other thing is that when I was a young writer, there was a real sort of thing about between like a certain kind of poet. I don't know what this certain kind of poet would be called, but like more mainstream say, and then like language poets, all of them were, were actually academic poets. And I just am like, eh, I kind of like some of this stuff everyone does you know i'm interested in it all yeah so i'm thinking like one of the things i'm hearing there is like if someone if a rule or someone is telling you that you should not be interested in the things you're interested in don't listen to it and you bring it back to the individual and it's about following our own genius. And what what is it? What is it that interests you? What is it that adds to you and that surprises you and that questions you? If that leads you into this kind of poetry, that great. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I had a couple of poet friends tumble out of the mountains here uh, last night. They did this 26 mile one day hike, which is up this 
this place called Asgard Pass into a place called the Enchantments. Mm. I'll take you there someday if you yeah, want. Uh, Enchantments and then Dan out the Snow Lakes Trail. And they start at like 6.30 a.m. and they tumbled out at like 8.30 p.m. So anyway, I was talking to them last night and they teach at a at some universities not far from here. And they both know your work and, and love your work. And I said, hey, I'm going to be interviewing Ross Gay tomorrow. What do I need to ask Ross Gay? And uh, one of them, I, I love the joy. I love the delights. But where's the despair? Where's the shadow side? And we started talking about the arc of your work. And we were like, there was more of that in bringing the shovel down. Like right from the get-go, that lead poem. Holy yeah. gods, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So is it all, you know, rainbows and honeysuckle now for Ross Gay? Mm-hmm. Is despair something that he's outgrown? Mm-hmm. Yes, neat question. And it's a question that to me suggests not having read the books. <laughs> <laughs> Which I get too. Like the thing is like the last poem in catalog might have gratitude. The last stanza is a little girl in a dream walking with the speaker saying, pointing at the sky and saying, yep. Point at the sky and saying, it's much worse than we think and sooner. And the speaker saying, I know that's why the fuck I'm singing like this. And then inciting joy, it's like, though this is a really a thing that I haven't thought about that bringing the shovel down book, I think among the things that I was kind of wrestling with was was like these sort of foundational stories that are stories about animosity, antagonism, brutality that are so seductive. So there's like the bringing the shovel down poem about, you know, the kid thinking this dog's going to kill him and he kills a dog. Or there's a poem in there called Glass that's about these kids and their abusive dad and they basically, the dad has the mom sent away and they basically grind up glass and feed it to their dad and his soup or something. All this, you know, crazy shit. That's a book that's written in the midst of sort of, you know, the deep in Iraq, you know, deep in this sort of like Afghanistan, deep in this sort of like the ongoing imperial destructive American project. When I think about the work that I'm doing now, there's a way that like it's changed absolutely, you know, and in a way I'm sort of learning how to articulate this thing, which is like, if you study what you love, probably that will grow. Not only will it be nourishing, it'll make you feel better. It might be better for your blood pressure, but it might actually, <clears throat> it might actually sort of what you love might grow and sharing what you love might actually be a sort of worthwhile project. Um, ideally a contagious project, but the, the shadow side, say, I think in these books, these recent books, is a little bit the same shadow side, which is the, um, you know, in this book, this more delights book, so much of what I feel like there's a kind of understanding that there is a perpetual onslaught of brutality, you know, that is, that takes all kinds of shapes. And some of those shapes might be sort of corporate power. Or some of those shapes might be versions, you know, state power, versions of state power. There's all of this stuff that is sort of um, 
really present in the inciting joy book. I mean, the inciting joy book is like really kind of fraught in a way. It feels like a book that is like really fraught with that rage and 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 the delights in a way do too. Especially this new delights book, it feels like, yo, heads up, heads up. These motherfuckers are lying to us and we really need to practice caring for one another. You know, we really need to practice this. We really need to tell different stories, which is sort of what that bringing the shovel down book is, is doing too. It's like becoming aware of the stories, I think, in that, in that second book. And by now I'm sort of like, okay, like, yo, okay, those are the stories, heads up. These are the stories that I would prefer we notice. I would prefer we notice how we care for one another. Or I would prefer to notice, I should say. Yeah. yeah. I remember I know that before you've talked about developing that joy or delight muscle. Yeah. And um I, I like that. I appreciate that. I think too, you know, you've you've strengthened your noticing muscle. Yes. Noticing is yeah. what is everywhere in these delights. Yeah. Uh noticing. And that noticing is an invitation to that we can all do this. This is right in front of you right now. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. And, and it inclines us to care for one another in the midst of systems of thought, systems of belief, et cetera, that incline us to distrust and actually brutalize one another. That's yeah. the other thing. And that's, again, like to the, the person coming out, stumbling out of the hill who said, is it all rainbows? One of the things is that, to me, these delights have a, an acute social, et cetera, project, which is that, you know, like one way of saying it is to guard against the theft of care that masquerades as care and to actually affirm or to shout about or celebrate the care that is actually care. Yeah. Another way to think about that, it occurs to me is like in the delights books, in the joy book, there is some interrogation of what really is delight what really is joy what really what does it really look like to care for each other versus what we hear in the news yes to put your attention on the joy and the delight it comes out of that that consistent awareness that is not gone yeah that's still there yeah totally that's still there yeah and i go back to a passage from the book of more delights and you write in shortcut the whole while we chatted we worried we despaired mm-hmm. that it had just rained in northern greenland i told him my rage was florid your rage is what he asked <laughs> florid i said my rage feels florid and then alex's 7 year old child ran by as i heaved my backpack of fruit onto my shoulders Oh God, that's it, man. I mean, like, you know, here, these two adult males are talking and they've got figs and, and pawpaws and, and then here's the, here's the little seven-year-old man. That's where it's going to hit. That's where, that's the kid. And it's so beautifully understated. That's, that's where the poetry again comes in because it takes me as a reader to help make that magic happen. I have yeah. to be open to that. 
And so that the destruction is there. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually just doing an interview with um, that tricycle, the Buddhist magazine, and um, Sharon Salzberg was on there. And she said something like despair is like sureness. Like when you feel despair, you know what's going to happen. And I think my intention is not to feel despair. My intention is to feel curiosity. And I'd be lying if I said I don't feel despair. <laughs> if I say I don't feel despair, I'd be full of shit. But my intention and my practice is to feel curiosity, you know, is to feel like, huh, what, what is going to be the case for that six-year-old or seven-year-old kid? You know, I know for one thing, there will be suffering just because that kid's a creature, you know, like a human creature. And I know that is a condition. But I also know that my buddy just gave me like a backpack full of pawpaws. <laughs> and, and there we are. There we are again. We come back to that. You know, the, the simple fact of connection and sustenance and the question about the future suffering here. Mm. And that, that becomes a kind of injury itself when we get convinced that the only thing that's happening is horrible. You know, yeah, there's plenty of horrible, but it's also the case that um, we can get confused and not think that our neighbor actually just lent us their shovel. Like, oh yeah, that happened too. Happens every day, matter of fact, you know, some version of that. I could listen to Ross Gay for days, but unfortunately, that's all we've got. We do have two more poems for you, though, to layer on to the conversation. Here's Jillian Hansen with her poem on NPR this afternoon. I'm Jillian Hansen, and this is my poem on NPR this afternoon. Jane Fonda said her body feels such despair about the crisis, she is dedicating the rest of her life not very long, awkward laugh cry, to climate activism. Next to the radio in the kitchen, chicken roasting in the oven, I feel it too. Chest clenched, neck knotted, head split alarm that all our failures to live right are now roosting. Do something, I whisper, for the thousandth time, but can only watch myself watching the light beyond the window a pathless patch of sky, birds, and then no birds. Do something. Thank you, Jillian. Camille Newsom is going to take us home today with her poem, Duplex 2. This is Camille Newsom reading Duplex 2, inspired by Jericho Brown. When the crescent moon holds the sky with a spoon, all the shapes stumble. All the shapes stumble when we sleep like animals known only by tracks and traces. The animals known only by tracks and traces know you didn't choose to pierce this world. You're here. You're here probing the sounds of gardens in the rain, binging the mind's appetite, spying the pigeons dressed in purple. The pigeon dressed with purple wings curls ribbon on a present lodged in flower petals. In the center of the flower are all the things you didn't know you love. 
I didn't know I loved snow, frosty and sharp, even when peed on by babies and puppies strolling at dusk. Babies and puppies stir at dusk when the crescent moon holds the sky with a spoon. The crescent moon holds the sky with a spoon, cupping you and everything else. You can find all the poems from today's episode, as well as the transcript of our interview with Ross Gay at terrain.org and in the show notes. Thank you for listening and for being a part of this community. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, I hope you're refreshed and ready to keep on caring. Here's to the noticing muscle in all its glory.